the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. Last week we looked at these four elements of God. We, we looked at really just the first verse of Genesis chapter 1. And we looked at how um, God was central to everything. We looked at how God created everything. We looked at how God was a redeeming God and how God was also a triune God or or three yet one God. And this week, uh, I want us uh, to continue on and we're going to be in Genesis chapter three this morning. And for you gold star students, I'm actually also going to have you go and hold your place in James chapter one, James chapter one. I'll tell you uh, when we're going to turn there. Um, in just a few minutes. Um, but when we open up and we read the creative narrative of Genesis 1 and 2, we hear over and over and over again that the Lord declared that it was good. He created life and it was good. He created the sun, the moon, and the stars on day four and it was good. He created the heavens and the earth and it was good. This meant, when God spoke the words, it was good. It meant that everything God made was according to his divine design. It meant that it fulfilled his design purpose. There was nothing that was left out by God or that he intended to accomplish in creation that was left out. Everything was the way God intended for it to be. There was nothing that was lacking. Not a single thing was lacking. God created the world and everything in it in a way that resulted in man's good, but in God's glory. And we see this from the creation narrative, just the first two chapters of Genesis. And we see that God was was the greatest provision for man. God was exactly what man needed most because he was the ultimate source of life and fulfillment. This is why God told the first humans, Adam and Eve, this is why he told them that disobedience would result in death. That's why they would be cut off from this source of life. But losing the beauty and the bounty of the garden would be the least of Adam and Eve's losses. They would lose fellowship with the God who created them. But I want us to look at this morning how this happened. How did they lose this fellowship? How did sin enter the world? Now, we sit, we sit here and we typically look at this passage of Scripture. And I was telling the prayer team before we came up here, and, and really the prayer that, that I've been praying leading up to this is that we would not um, tune out the Holy Spirit in this place, looking at a familiar passage of Scripture, right? The story of Adam and Eve, the story of the fruit, the story of the fall of mankind is something that's preached on. And, and if you've been in church any length of time, you've probably heard it more times than one. And it's probably sounded very similar every single time. Eve ate the fruit. She gave it to her husband. Her husband was passive. We hear these things over and over and over again. And I don't want to negate those things in any way, shape, or form. But there's something fresh that we need to see here from Scripture. And so I want us to look at actually... We're going we're gonna to start in chapter number 2 and look at verse number 15. And it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, or eat of it, you shall surely die. Now I want us now to jump 
to chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Now I need you to know, um, and then catch this before we move on, Eve only repeated part of what God said. Eve only repeated part of what God said. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. That was not how God portrayed it to Adam. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat uh, eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and to the tree uh, was to be desired for food uh, and to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of the both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed figs leaves together and made themselves loincloths. In verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, In the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you, in verse 11, that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave To be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, And between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is God's word for us today. Let's pray. God, we come to you right now over this passage of scripture. And there are some amazing truths that we are about to see here. And so God, I pray for pliable and moldable hearts. I pray for open ears. I I pray for windows, Lord, to to the soul to be changed, uh, to be Um, in a place where we listen to you, to your word. God, that we would learn something fresh, something new in this place. Holy Spirit, move. Uh, Move in this place this morning. And I ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Now, the first thing I need us to see right out of the gate here in this passage of Scripture is that they doubted God's word. They doubted God's word. If we look right out of the gate, the serpent says... Did God actually say that? Did God actually say that? Now, God clearly revealed himself and communicated his requirement for obedience to Adam and Eve. And God did not leave anything out that was necessary for Adam and Eve to trust him and for them to obey. But Satan immediately worked in their lives by introducing doubt about God's word. Did God actually say, church, The only right response in a situation like this or any situation would have been to quote God's exact words back to the serpent. 
We see this in Matthew chapter 4, right before Jesus' ministry. He is confronted and tempted in the desert multiple times by Satan. And what does Jesus himself do? Over and over and over again, he quotes scripture and quotes scripture and quotes scripture over and over again. But rather than responding in that way, Eve responds in a way that completely contradicts the word of God. Completely contradicts. Now, I want us to see what happens, though, when we go against, when we contradict uh, the word of God because of temptation. Now, for those of you who are Gold Star students, I want you to jump with me to the book of James. James talks extensively about human temptation. And I want us to start in verse number 12. James said, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who he loves. Look at verse 13. He goes on to say, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person, listen to this, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. But James doesn't stop there. He says, do not be deceived, my dear brethren. Do not be deceived. James is telling us right here that God does not tempt us. He is saying that temptation comes when we're drawn away by our own fleshly desires and we're enticed with the world and the devil provides that enticement. It's exactly what James is telling us. And then he goes on to say that when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sinfulness comes from our fleshly desires. It springs forth from corruption and that corruption brings forth death. The progression, the progression that we see in Scripture that leads to death is an inescapable result that Satan always tries to hide from the believer. And James is saying, do not be deceived by your temptation. Do not be deceived. I've learned as I've studied scripture, that Satan's greatest strategy in temptation is to convince us that the pursuit of our own corrupt desires are going to somehow produce life and goodness. But we have to remember what Jesus told us in John 10.10 about Satan. He said the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy and the only way that we can effectively resist the, de the deceptions of temptation is to remember what Satan is here to do. Now, I want us to see what James continues to say here, though. In verse number 17, he says that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, meaning that God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever as we hear in Hebrews. But he doesn't stop there. He said of his own will, he brought us forth by the what? what did, those of you who have your Bible open to James, what did he bring us forth by? The word of truth. The word of truth. 
And it says that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature, of his creature. James is telling us, and I think you guys should note this, it's going to come to the screen, that when we face temptation, our greatest source of wisdom and direction is the word of God. Our greatest source of wisdom and direction is the word of God. For us to even begin to doubt God's word is to descend a very slippery slope towards disobedience. So church, I have a question for us this morning. Are we standing firm on the truth of God's word? Or have we begun to entertain the thoughts, did God actually say? Did God actually say? The second thing that I need to see, not only did they doubt but they denied the goodness of God. They denied the goodness of God. After introducing doubt regarding God's word, Satan's next step was to blatantly deny that God was good. He basically says that God has lied to you, that he's been holding out on you. But we clearly can see from the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2 that God is good. That God is good. He has graciously provided every single thing that man and women needed to live a life that is full and in fellowship with him. You know, despite God's gracious provision, to believe the lie that God had withheld something needful from them. You know, rather than trusting in the goodness of the creator, they decided to trust and consider the desirability of the creation itself. Church, when, whenever we allow ourselves to question the goodness or the sufficiency of God, it's a small step towards desiring self-fulfillment through creation. It's a small step. And those steps begin to grow larger and larger the more you depend upon yourself and not upon God. I believe that's why Paul told us in the book of Romans 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Why? To gratify its desire. Don't make any provision for it. Paul is telling us that when we put on Christ, we are putting on the armor of God and we're equipped both to defend and attack. But it's not just to put on the character of Christ. He uses this phrase, putting on Christ, with a strong and vivid metaphor for the believer. He said this, but rather let Christ himself be the armor that you wear. That's what Paul was talking about. Believer, Christian, in here, I need you to understand that your flesh and my flesh will be as active as we allow it to be. It will be as active as we allow it to be. We have a work to do in walking properly as it is the day. We have a work to do. It is not as if we um, just sit back and Jesus does it for us in our life. Instead, Jesus does it through us as we willingly and actively partner with him. Sanctification. That's how that works in the life of a believer. I love the fact that Romans 13 was the passage 
that God showed to St. Augustine, one of the greatest theologians of the early church, that he could really live a Christian life that was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Man, we're, we're told over and over and over, church, that God has provided and I believe that, that Peter summed it up best when he said that God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness or righteousness. He did that through the provision of himself. He, he, he did that through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. He did that through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So church... Christian, do you really believe that God is good? Do you really believe that God is enough? Or are you living as though God has been holding out on you? He's been, he's been keeping something from you that you really need. They, they doubted. They denied. The next thing I want us to see is that they disobeyed God's command. They disobeyed God's command. Once we deny God's goodness, once we, we doubt God's word, is it, it is an easy next step for us to seek self-sufficiency and, and disobey God. Do you know Eve and then Adam after her believed Satan's lies rather than believing the truth of God's word himself? And, and, and they sought to be their own provider. They sought to be their own God. This is something that we want, is what they said. We see it in their actions. And I, I love what, what the prophet Samuel tells us. In First Samuel chapter 15, it says, For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he will reject you. Speaking of God, to the, 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 the one who rejected truth. But I love most what Samuel was trying to communicate. When he said, for rebellion, he was talking about the Hebrew word meri, M-E-R-I. That word means to disobey or to violate or to go against or transgress. He was telling us that a disobedient heart rejects God just as someone rejects God by occult practices. That's exactly what Samuel was saying. He's telling us that all conscious disobedience is idolatry. Why? Because it's made self-will into a God. It's made self-will into a God. It's very sad that the result that we see over and over and over in Scripture is that disobedience is always devastating. Disobedience is always devastating. You know, when, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, their eyes were indeed open. But they did not see anything that they expected to see. Rather than seeing that they had become God-like themselves... They were cut off from the fellowship that they once freely enjoyed. They also saw that the sin impacted their relationship with one another. There was a curse that was about to come. 
Church, I want you to note that disobedience to God's command does not bring abundant life and greater freedom, but instead it brings spiritual death and bondage. So my question here is, have you believed the lie that God's word is not true? Have you, have you believed that lie? It's very sad because our culture... Our culture is telling us over and over and over again that we're to reject the Old Testament. We're told by our culture that God's word didn't actually say that. We're told over and over and over again, we can't trust the word of God. Church, that's, that's a very scary place to be in. Disobedience is devastating. Disobedience is devastating not only to ourselves, but every time we sin, we affect everybody in our circle of influence. Whether you see it right now, or you'll see it in a week, or a month, or six months, or ten years from now, your sinfulness always affects other people. I've said this over and over and over again to you, that a, a pastor friend of mine used to say to us all the time that you never sin alone. You never sin alone because your sin affects everything. It brings death and destruction and devastation. You can be sure, though, that that type of direction will never end well. Solomon told us. Samuel told us. Moses told us. Abraham showed us. Joseph was affected by the sinfulness of someone else. Now imagine with me for just a moment that that was it. Imagine with me that that's all that Moses recorded. That that was the end of this sermon. That it, it was over. Death, destruction, separation. Like, pack it up. Let's head home. There's nothing else here in this portion of Scripture. I mean, talk about, talk about sadness. Talk about pain. Talk about worst sermon ever. But there's hope. There's hope in this passage of Scripture. Christ is seen in this passage of Scripture. There is something that I want us to look at in verse number 13 and 14 and 15. It says, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God says to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Church, I need us to see that there was a confrontation and then there was a curse that comes. There was a confrontation and a curse. Now, I want you to throw out everything that you have believed or thought you knew about these couple of verses here in Genesis. I want you to just throw it away. And I want you guys to put on your spiritual seatbelts with me for just a moment. All right? I want you to grab your seatbelt and I want you to click it on right now with me. Ready? One, two, three. I want you to put on your spiritual seatbelts. When God confronted Eve here, I want you to see this. 
Eve did not necessarily shift the blame when she admitted that the serpent deceived her and that she ate. This much we know from Scripture. She was deceived and she ate. Those are the two things that were told. Now, if you look at the Hebrew wording there, the problem comes when we fail to see that being deceived is sin in itself. Being deceived is sin in itself. That's why Paul told us in Romans chapter 1 to exchange the truth of God for a lie is sinfulness. To exchange the truth of God for a lie, it is sinfulness. We see that in Romans 1.25. And the curse comes after the confrontation. The curse comes. And the first part of that curse, it says this. The Lord said to the serpent, to the serpent. He has directed a curse at the animal that Satan has used to bring about the temptation. He's cursed the animal. He commanded that that animal would, would slither on the ground instead of walking on legs like any other animal. Adam and Eve had to have been petrified in that very moment of time because this once beautiful creature that was called the serpent was then transformed into some creeping and slithering hissing snake that we know today. It's in addition to all of that, we see because of humans that there is a natural aversion between mankind and serpents, especially with women. We see this. It's recorded over and over and over again. And whatever nobility this creature had before the fall, before the curse, it was gone. It was gone. And the creature that Satan used to tempt Eve would be a low, groveling creature. Showing us that sin is mean. Showing us that sin is despicable. I believe it was Spurgeon who said that the greatest potency of evil was doomed to cringe and to crawl. And he goes on to say that even Satan's seed has never forgotten its father's posture. Meaning that it has not changed. The serpent still slithers on the ground. It has not evolved into something else. But it didn't stop there. God goes on to say that you will eat dust all the days of your life. Man, that is true of the serpent still today. And it was true of Satan still today. To eat dust carries with it the idea of total defeat. We see that from the book of Isaiah chapter 65 and Micah chapter 7. We see it over and over that God's judgment on Satan is for him to always know defeat. That was the purpose of the curse. Satan will always try to reach for victory and he will never, ever, ever have it. Not ever does Satan get the victory in the end. Satan's victory will always fall short. But I, I love this. That Satan in his own thinking was that he was majestic and triumphant over Jesus on the cross. But he failed. He failed in his own thinking. And in attacking Jesus, Satan brought out his own doom. His own. But you want to know what? As believers, one of the greatest 
promises that we have is that we get to share in that victory with Jesus Christ. Church, did did you hear me? Christian, you get to share in the victory that Jesus Christ had over Satan and over death. Yes, every single day. That's why Paul told us in Romans 16 that the God would soon crush Satan underneath our feet. Underneath our feet, he would be crushed. Man, God took the curse further than that towards the serpent. But then God cursed Satan himself. Look at verse number 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I want you to know that God placed a natural animosity between Satan and mankind. There was a natural animosity. Do you know that word enmity there comes from the Hebrew word meaning ill-willed or hatred or mutual antagonism towards something or someone? Satan's hatred of Eve was nothing new. It was already present because Satan was a fallen being. But now man will, generally speaking, have antagonism towards Satan. That's exactly what Moses was trying to communicate. And I want to chase this rabbit trail for just a moment. If we are born naturally rebellious against God, if we are born naturally rebellious against God, then we are also born cautious and afraid of Satan. We are, actually, we are born cautious and afraid of Satan. Do you know one has to be hardened and willing and knowingly willing to serve Satan? Instinctively, we do not serve God or Satan. We actually serve ourselves. instinctively. And Satan is okay with that. Satan is okay with you serving yourself and not serving God. But, but there's, this, there's this doom that is in, that's impending here because of this. And God prophesies showing that the real battle is between Satan and the seed of the woman. There's no doubt that this prophecy is the one of Jesus' ultimate defeat of Satan as we see in the Gospels. But God announced that Satan would wound the Messiah. He announced it. But he said the Messiah would crush Satan with a mortal wound. It was as if God could not wait to announce his plan of salvation from the third book of Genesis. He wanted to bring deliverance through the one known as the seed of woman. You know what I find ironic here? Is the fact that the heel is the part of the body that would be within the serpent's reach. He didn't say that he was going to strike his hand. He didn't say he was going to strike his face or his chest or his back or his shoulder. He said he would strike his heel. Jesus took on humanity. And he brought himself to Satan's domain so that Satan could strike him. And that bruised heel 
was painful enough. Jesus was betrayed. He was bound. He was accused. He was scourged. He was spit on. He was nailed to a cross. He hung there in thirst, pain, darkness, desertion. But in Genesis 3.15, the first gospel sermon was delivered upon the surface of the earth. The first gospel sermon. I just think about how memorable that must have been. Jehovah himself was the preacher. And all of mankind, and even the prince of darkness, was his audience. For God to see the defeat of Satan, as Satan's first flush of victory shows that God knew what he was doing all along. God's plan was not defeated when Adam and Eve sinned. God's plan was to bring forth something greater than man and woman in the innocence of the garden. God's plan was to bring forth redemption through the, through the garden. God wanted something more than innocence. He wanted relationship with mankind. Man, Paul writes some of the greatest things in the New Testament. This is why Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 1 that it is in him, speaking of Jesus, that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to his riches in grace. His. The word redemption that we see in the Bible talks about the act or the process of buying something back. When sin entered the human race through Adam, it resulted in spiritual death for all mankind. And for man to be reconciled to God and have relationship and fellowship with him restored, it required redemption. Redemption, church. Because there was a deadly consequence of sin. Redemption was necessary because man's condition required it to be necessary. For the wages of sin is death, Romans tells us. It also tells us that every man has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Man's condition made it required. But redemption was also necessary because God's nature requires it. You know... I quote this verse quite frequently, it seems like, but Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Died for you. Put your name in there. While I, Josh Cahill, was a sinner, Christ died for me, Josh Cahill. Christ's love prompted redemption. Christ's wisdom conceived redemption. His holiness demanded that redemption and His only begotten Son provided it. He made it available, church, to us, to the whole world. 
John, the apostle, the gospel writer, the one who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the book of Revelation, he said that, that Christ was the propitiation for our sins, or the, the payment for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole entire world. He made it available to everyone. And John even told us that it was completely successful when he said that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins. And it doesn't stop there, but he goes on to say that he will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It it was completely successful redemption. I believe it was Jesus himself who said in his ministry that I give them eternal life and they will not perish. It was available and it was complete. But Paul also recorded for us something that we must never forget. He said we have been saved by grace through faith. That it's not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man would boast. That verse alone tells us three things that we should never forget about the gospel. They're going to come to the screen very quickly. The first is that it cannot be obtained through any merit of our own. Redemption. Cannot be obtained through any merit. Redemption cannot be obtained through our good works. Just because I helped little Miss Sally cross the street in the snow doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Just because you donated to a Christian organization doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Just because you served in your church doesn't mean you're going to heaven. And then he said it comes by his grace through our faith. One of the biggest mistakes in churches all across America is the fact that they have led so many people to what I call false conversions. Just telling someone, if you say these ten words, then you're good to go and you're on your way to heaven. What a lie. There's no merit, no work. It was, it was the blood-stained path that led to salvation. That's it. Our redemption comes through Jesus alone. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, yes, they lost the bountiful provision of the garden, but more importantly, they lost unhindered fellowship with God, who is the only source of life the only source of fulfillment. And because each one of us was born a sinner, we've been cut off from fellowship with God and our only hope in this life, eternal and abundant, is through God's provision of His Son. So church, we we have a moment here in this time. We have a moment in this place where we have the opportunity to reflect upon what God has done for us, what He had to endure 
for us to bring about redemption. We have a moment of time for us to get alone with God and say, do I truly believe? Have I doubted your word? Have I denied your goodness? Am I trying to seek self-sufficiency through a relationship, through an addiction, through money? Or am I here in this place seeking after truth to be changed, to grow, to be a disciple maker, to be one who gives 